What you call the cost of living crisis, the government calls policy. Dump it. And the crime of the century is now the cover-up of the century. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report. It's the 18th of January 2024. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher and editor Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Robbie. In this week's episode, we are going to talk about the fact that the whole cost of living crisis is entirely manufactured by government policy and the people who didn't manufacture it, which is the people, are the ones who are being punished for it. Um, and what the government, what we must demand the government to do about it um, in relation to the Reserve Bank. And we're going to talk about an article Richard has written on this scandal where 20 years after the invasion of Iraq, um, suddenly the usual process of releasing the cabinet documents that um, you know, relate to the decisions of government 20 years earlier um, fell apart in relation to this particular uh, episode. And the question is why? And so Richard's got some good um, insights into that. Um, but let's get on with it. Before we begin, remember, this is you know, our way of getting the message out to people. This is, we're not just peddlers of information here, we're activists. The information we talk about on this show is, a, is about giving insights into things we can do something about. If you, if you just want to consume information, there's a lot of other channels on YouTube for that purpose. <laughs> But this is about activism. We want, we want to do stuff. And the way you can help immediately, along with all the other things we ask you to do, is help us get this show around by liking it, um, sharing it on social media, subscribing to it if you're not already a subscriber. When you do, remember to click the bell icon. Make a comment underneath um, and help get the, 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 the discussion, the debate going uh, down there. Those comments are very valuable. And as we have time, we participate in them. Um, and please donate. There's a donate button down there as well. Donate towards our activities of what we're trying to do because sometimes it is literally, you know, sometimes in Australian politics we are literally the only party that stands between um, what the, the bad policy of the government and, and the impact it's going to have on the people. And we're, we're particularly uh, in, uh, focused right now on leading the fight against a, an atrocious policy that Jim Chalmers is trying to ram through to disempower the government to protect the people. That's what we're going to talk about um, in this week's episode. Before we begin, though, Richard, I have, an, I have an advertisement. And this is an advertisement that is... Um, you, you can only do it in the, in, the, in the modern era. And that's this. There's a British TV show you should watch. And the way you have to watch it is on a VPN. You've got to get a VPN and pretend you live in the UK. But if you can do that, go to ITV in the UK and look up the show Mr Bates versus the Post Office. And it is an explosive show. It has blown up an enormous scandal in the UK. And it has um, parallels to what happened to the post offices in Australia with the LPOs and the way they were mistreated by Australia Post before Christine Holgate came along. She actually addressed their concerns. They got rid of Christine Holgate and now the post offices are back to where they started being mistreated by Australia Post. Um, the, the, the parallels are there. The, the cases in Australia so far are not quite as extreme as this case in the, in the United States, but 
It's really blown up. Mr. Bates was the one man who, who refused to accept he was wrong and he stared the post office down and he's been able to um, uh, organise the rebellion on this scandal against the corporate thugs who run the post office there, organise a rebellion that's now blown up into a huge scandal on the back of this drama, frankly. Politicians weren't acting until this drama was aired on mm. ITV. And that is a, that is a particular failing politicians. We're going to do episodes on this in the future, but I just wanted to advertise it. If you get yourself a VPN, virtual private network, and you can watch this show in the UK now. I've started watching it. It is mm. explosive. Um, all right. Add out of the way, let's get into the show. What you call the cost of living crisis, the government calls policy. Dump it. And what we're talking about is a real crisis. The cost of living, uh, Richard briefs us every morning. One of your jobs you're, uh, in the office, Richard, if we haven't talked about this before, is he gets up early in the morning and reads the newspapers for us, so we don't have to. That's why I'm going grey. He's, he, he's, he's our filter. Actually, I saw, I saw a YouTube video of someone putting a firecracker under a filter to clean it out that way, mm. etc. Do we need to do that with you? Anyway, you, you absorb all the crap and he, he, he weeds out all the bad stuff, all the boring stuff, all the, all the non, unimportant stuff, and he presents us the, the, the important stuff every morning. What time do you get up to do that? Oh, half past three, four o'clock. <laughs> early, to, early, to, early to bed, this early to rise. Okay. Did you just call me a girl? Guy, sorry, this guy. <laughs> um, so, one of the things that's 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 been reported just in the last week um, is the 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 actual amount of hard evidence of the impact the cost of living crisis is having on Australian households. So, mm. for instance, just two two metrics that are that are relevant um, in the Australian on the twelfth of January reported households are increasingly turning to short term loans to cover mortgage arrears. Mm. And when you're doing that, you're 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 circling the toilet. Yeah. Right? It's a downward I mean, spiral. Borrowing to pay your debts, and you'll be borrowing at a higher rate. Yep. If you're borrowing from these uh, debt consolidation services and so on. Well, the, the the particular company that featured in this article was mm. saying, "Oh, we can provide this service for twenty percent interest." Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, um, if you can't if you can't meet your six percent interest loan. And you have to borrow short term at twenty percent interest to do it. That is really desperation stuff. It kind of reminds right? me of those old remedial classes. They would put the dumb kids in and then go slower. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the other way of thinking about it. I remember seeing this old. I can't even. I'm not even sure what, what movie it was, but an old Henry Fonda movie, where he's at the gambling table and his wife's in the background and he's losing, and he stays there because he thinks next, you know, double or nothing. He doubles down again. He doubles down again. Next, the next hand will be a winner, and his wife's begging him to leave the table, and he won't leave the table because the next, the next hand's going to be a winner. It's a certain, it, it's a real trap people can get can get into. That's happening in a significant way in Australia right now. Um, the other indicator is Essential Research. The company Essential Research did a survey for the Super Members Council which found that, and the key here, Richard, is the growth rate, right? Mm. The survey showed that, found that 53% of Australians are experiencing some degree of financial difficulty, but that's up from 39% in mid-2022. Mm. So um, by the, roughly the time Albanese was elected, it was 39%. Now it's 53%. Of that 53%, 14% described themselves as being in serious difficulty. Sorry, not of the 50, 14% of the total, mm. right? So the 14% chunk of the 
part of the 53%, described themselves as being in serious difficulty and a regular concern was being able to pay all their bills. Now, what is the number one driver of the cost of living crisis facing households? It is the cost of housing itself. That is the number one driver. And we would have talked about this at the end of last year. Um, macro business uh, reported in November, and they showed the figures, housing in the whole CPI, housing accounts for 50% of inflation. Mm. Fully half of inflation is housing. And that's, that's, that's actual housing, that's rentals, the whole, the whole thing, right? Fully half. That's your crisis right there. So we've got, we've got the Reserve Bank making decisions to deal with inflation and they're saying, oh, well, all we can do is raise interest rates, Yeah. right? We've got one tool and the one thing that's driving inflation, they're making more expensive. Yep. That, that, that's the system in Australia at the moment. Um, and therefore, what you're dealing with with the cost of living, there's a, the, the, the thing that people need to get out of their heads in a sense is this is have some kind of a sense that something like a cost of living crisis is like you know a, a weather event mm. a, a perfect storm um uh, type natural phenomenon right or oh, things move around and then this this happens etc and, and you know uh you're really powerless to deal with it you just, mm. you, all you can do is respond to it right yeah. which is the yeah, this is the this is this whole what they call the neoliberal idea right the, mm. the efficient markets hypothesis yep that, that's what this boils down to, and it's never been true. Yeah, exactly. The, the market and the hidden hand of the market is, is, is operating, mm. right? And all we can do is respond to what's going on in the market. No, absolutely no. Because that's, that's what this segment is about. We're going to show that, no, no, everything we're dealing with is government policy, and including what we just talked about. The, the way of dealing with inflation has, that the Reserve Bank has implemented for the last two years has made the, the actual cost of living crisis work. So they've got, a way of, they've got a way of measuring inflation, which they're claiming is coming down, but the cost of living isn't coming down. So what's the point of worrying about inflation if, mm. if it's not tied to the cost of living? Yeah. Right? Yeah, because del- in the late 1990s, they deliberately s- excluded... Now, there's debate about whether what should have been included in the first place and what, you know, all of that, but uh, back and forth between economists, some of whom are actually competent, but... Um, but the point is, it used to include housing costs, yep. and now the bulk of that in the 90s, when they decided to blow up the housing bubble, because that was a conscious decision, yep. then they, pre-empt- they, they preempted that by dropping that out of the CPI calculations, the, 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 yeah, the, the standard um, inflation measure, so that they could pretend that it wasn't a problem. They were able, exactly. They were able to claim they had low inflation for two decades, because they took out the, they, they stopped measuring the thing that was inflating. <laughs> that's they how they had, did it. Because they decided to inflate they it. They decided to inflate it, right? And that's and 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 they sold it to the Australian public as you're getting richer because your house is becoming more valuable. Mm. That was always inflation, asset price inflation. But no, no, they twisted it and said, "Oh, you're getting richer." Meanwhile, the same people who did this were destroying the actual parts of our economy that earn income. So they created this bubble in the thing that made us feel, they called it the wealth effect, right? So Mm. as the price of property went up, they would run these ads. I remember when it started, Greg Chappell and some, you know, um, comedian or whatever, the the, uh, 
the, the Greg Chapel would go over to his neighbour's house and he'd go, oh, you got a new, you got a new jet ski, you got a new boat, you got a new mm-hmm. motorbike. How do you, how can you afford that? Equity, mate. Equity, mate. Right. Yep, so that's, I remember that. From the year two thousand, the, the 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 price of property started to soar. Um, all of a sudden, people are being told, "Hey, you're sitting on a gold mine here. Borrow against it." Right. All that kind of stuff. And this was happening not just in Australia but around the world. But that became that wealth effect, that feeling that we were wealthy and could borrow against it from the banks became a substitute for having an economy that actually earned income. Now, we kept the resources exports, Mm. which became kind of like the only part that earned income. But we gave away, we drove out our manufacturing Mm. Mind you, right. we gave away the bulk of the resource profits and too, go, but that's, that's a right, that's different right. story. That, that's, um, uh, and, and, and we were lulled into this false sense of uh, security. Um, but what we want to focus on now is the specific policies the government, the Reserve Bank and the banks have created, to have implemented to create this bubble in housing that's driven the cost of living crisis and how they're still doing it, right? So... Um, and, and like I said, the RBA's solution is to, is to um, uh, you know, here, here's the, the cost of living is 50% housing costs. Let's make housing costs more expensive. So what are they doing? Mm. Um, right now, they're punishing the borrower. And we're going to talk about more of that in a minute. But the people who are already in debt, they're being punished with the interest rate rises. This is, mm. And this has been the quickest uh, raising of rates in history. The fastest from, from less than 1%. Uh, well, 0.1% RBA cash rate um, in, well, that would have been like two and a half years ago, um, to 4.5%. Mm. And, and that, that, that get time, um, the time it took to go from 0.1% to 4.5% is the fastest raising of rates in history. And all the people who, the households are in debt, who are, who are they? They're the young family, if they're, if, they're ha- if they're lucky enough to be a young family who mm. have bought a house, they're the young families who are raised in the next generation. They're being absolutely smashed by this. Yeah. Right? So, so, and we're the ones that we, I've, I've now borrowed, by the way, to buy a house. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the mill as well. We are the ones being crushed to uh, deal with being punished for something that we never did. Meanwhile, the government and the RBA who have actual powers, they are allowing the banks, Richard, to push ahead with the things that are driving up the price of property more. So the Australian reported on the 12th of January that the value of new home loans rose 1% in for November. The total value of new home loans went up 1%. Now, 1% in a month is really fast mm. because annualised, it's at least 12% for the year, right? And that's just in what, that's just, that's, that's the overall rate. Um, and, and the Australian reported that is, quote, fueling expectations 2024 we'll see higher property prices. Now, of that 1%, the, the growth in uh, new owner-occupier loans only grew by half a percent, mm. right? So, so the, the people who need housing to live in, borrowing from the banks, that only grew by half a percent. Where did all the growth come from? Investor loans. Investor loans for the month of November 2023 went up 1.9%, um, you know, almost 2%. Mm. So round it up, that's 24%, 20 to 24% for the year. That's an enormous growth in investor loans. That is the thing that drove up the property bubble in the first place. 
All this investor lending and finding more and more ways to turn people into investors and encourage them to, oh, you've got one property, you can borrow against that, you can borrow against that. You know, they were, that, I remember a current affair doing stories. Oh, look, this guy's really successful. He owns 50 properties. Oh, you think he's successful? This guy owns 200 properties. Yeah. And they'd interview him and go, how do you afford these properties? Oh, credit. Yeah. Otherwise, they didn't own them. <laughs> No, the right. bank owned them. The bank, the bank was them. making the money yep. um, and people found out too late, yeah, you don't own that. Like, I mean, they should have known all along, but that's a, you know, you believe the hype. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, you mentioned before, I read these articles with, almost without fail when they're talking about people who desperately, they, they signed up to some loan that they probably can't actually afford or if interest rates go up anymore, they won't be able to. They're right on the edge because they need a place to live and, they'll, and then they'll just repeat this mantra about, oh, getting a foot onto the property ladder. <laughs> they're not investors. <laughs> That's right. They're first home buyers, right? They're not, they're not flipping this thing in six months or a year or whatever. They're trying to buy a bloody house to raise their kids in and not have to worry about being, you know, flip, flitting from here to there and packing up all their stuff anytime a landlord decides they need to evict them to charge someone else more money. And what increasingly started to happen as the past price of housing went up and up and up, the, the genuine first home buyers or, or home buyers would go to these auctions and they would find themselves priced out again mm. and again and out-competed by who? By the investors, including the foreign investors. But can I say, just on the foreign investors thing, because it is an issue, but... It's not the issue people think it is. When we, we looked at this around 2012, 2013, we looked at all the figures. And what we found then, and there were, at the time, there was all this hysteria about Chinese buyers of real estate, and it's happening again now. But if you look at the hysteria now, they're complaining about the Chinese buyers snapping up the properties in Turak. Hmm. Well, if that's the case, that's not your problem. You're not going to compete for the properties in Turak. I'm not going to no. compete for the properties in Turak. So let them, let, let them go for it. They're, but it's not them that's buying up the, the houses on every street. And it wasn't way back then either when all the focus was on it. And this is why we've always been contrarians on this issue because we find some other hysteria around China and you look at the actual details and what was the details then was foreign investors around at that time were about 2.5%. 2.5% of the total amount of money going into the property market. 2.5%. Yeah. Of which only another whatever fraction again was Chinese. Exactly. You know, of any it wasn't... It wasn't the issue. The issue was these, the way the banks rigged the system to allow them to create more and more investor loans. Yeah. Right? The, the, the investor component. And, 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 and the investors, like, it got so ridiculous, and we're going to show some graphs in a minute. Um, this is going back a few years ago now, but the average income of an investor was something like sixty to $70,000. These weren't enormously rich people. These were people who'd been talked into by the banks into becoming this investor class, yeah. right? Using all the tricks of negative gearing and the capital gains yeah. tax. And there's, a, and, and there's a completely crazy thing here that the banks are allowed to do in Australia and almost nowhere else in the world where they can actually impute, they, they can add your projected future rental income from the yes. property you're, you're yep. applying to buy as an investor into your income to qualify for the loan to buy it. Yep, yep. It's, it's, you know, it's margin lending, really. No, exactly. Um, so uh, that's what we're seeing. So what we're se so here we have, let's look at the components again. We've got a cost of living crisis. It's measured through the way they measure inflation. Half of, half of the whole of inflation is housing costs. 
We know, we, know that we know the price of housing going up is driven by investors. And while we're dealing with this crisis supposedly by crushing the genuine homeowners through interest rate mm. rises, the banks are on a tear just rolling out the credit for more and more investors to keep pushing those prices up, right? That's what's being allowed. To, and I say allowed because none of this need be allowed. The government has the powers to stop mm. this, right, and actually deal with this in a, in a uh, rational way. Um, uh, this is why we say this is policy. What you're calling the crisis, the cost-of-living crisis, deliberate policy. Now, very usefully, there's a, there's a, a sort of, prog- they call it progressive, but it basically means labour-affiliated think tank. And I think, I'll say very usefully, because it's labour-affiliated, this, act- this, this report that we're about to talk about is actually going to be very uncomfortable mm. for the Albanese government. But they're prepared to do that. So the think tank's called Per Capita. And we know Per Capita because Per Capita were the ones who we've talked about quite a bit on this show. They mm. did the report into a postal bank Yeah, they got the ball rolling on the whole thing. And on the 1st of December last year, when Glenn Ishwood and I testified to the Senate on um, the public bank solution for regional bank closures, and we, we promoted the idea of a postal bank, the executive director of Per Capita, Emma Dawson, was also one of the witnesses. She was there just before us. Um, also promoting the idea of a postal bank. So her organisation has just produced a report on government spending on housing. It's called On Whose Account? And the, 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 the information that they've come up with is frankly jaw-dropping. Um, it, what they show is that federal government essentially housing subsidies Mm. are now costing the federal budget $27 billion. So each year, the, the, pro, the cost, and I'm using those, that, those words carefully, it's not direct spending, the cost, explain that in a second, of, to the federal government is $27 billion. Of that $27 billion, 18 subsidises property investors. $18 billion of the federal government um, budget subsidises property investors. That is up, Richard, from one and a half billion dollars in the year two thousand. Yep. This is this is this is, and we're going to put up. Let's let's show the graphs. Like people can actually see it. Um, so the first one, we'll put up uh, figure one from page nineteen of the report. Total federal housing expenditure by programs in billions of dollars, but in 2022 dollars. Now, you can see straight away how big this has grown, enormous. And you see that first spike, of course, was the desperate measures they took to prop up the property bubble at the time of the 2008 crisis. Yep. Right? It's, it's there right in front of your eyes, rich, writ large. It's the only reason the Australian housing market didn't crash like the British one, the American one, etc. That government spending to prop it up. And at the time... To show you how governments lie about everything, when Kevin Rudd embarked on that spending, he they 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 announced it as measures to make housing more affordable. <laughs> right? Um, no, no, it was to prop up and get the market going up again. They ergo make housing less affordable. Um, so anyway, now we're at a point though which matches that crisis period back in two thousand eight. What does that tell you? And just to break it down for you, here's the components. The, 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 what colour is that? The orangey-brown orangey at the top, that is CGT, capital gains tax. 
and that's mm. the discount. That was one of the two things that the that happened in the three. No, there were three things that happened at the start of this bubble to deliberately create it. You've already talked about the taking inflation out of taking property out of the inflation CPI, right? The second one was Peter Costello introduced a fifty percent discount on capital gains tax for selling real estate. Yeah, fifty percent. So the, the, with the, there's a normal rate of capital gains tax, but if it's real estate, fifty percent discount. That allowed. So, so in other words, this is money the government is willing to forego yeah. to prop something up. Yeah. Right. Hence, hence the. As you said before, the specific cost to the federal budget because exactly. it's either expenditure or in this in this case the bulk of it is actually income, foregone revenue. Foregone revenue, exactly. Yeah, and and if you're and if you're like a blue collar worker or a tradie or whatever, and you look at your tax bill and you go, what, the, what, mm. how, why am I being slugged this much? Mm. Been there. That's one of the reasons you're being slugged this much because the government is not taking money off the things it should be taking money off, like this capital gains tax. Um, so that's the first that's the first component. The second component is negative gearing. Now, negative gearing grows. You can see there um, it hasn't. It, it started before the the capital gains tax part. It's not the other thing we discovered ten years ago when we did this report into the property market is the negative gearing component wasn't the biggest issue at the time as well. It always gets the most focus, but it grows as the market grows. Basically, mm-hmm. that's 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 the issue with it. Um, there's probably things that, that should be done, but it is not the same. That's not the issue with really bank credit, but it, it's a huge cost to the budget, though. So that, so that tells you how big the bubble is. Of That tells you how much investors can't afford their investment property if they're negative gearing that much. That's what mm-hmm. that tells you, right? That's more a metric, but it's a massive cost to the budget nonetheless. The third one is, um, again, forced to grow. That is Commonwealth Rental Assistance. That's the subsidy to the people who have to try and live in this stuff. Yeah, well, it's a right? subsidy to the landlords via their tenants. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and thereafter, a subsidy to the banks. Yep, no, exactly. It's, it always goes back to the banks eventually. And the, then you've got two other components. Um, the, there's the other. The blue one is, is other. Um, and that's just that's the little, some of the little fiddly stuff. The brown one at the bottom is the mo- also quite telling. What is that? The brown one is the actual money governments, the federal government spends on building houses yeah, through different programs. Social housing and, and so, right? you know, such things. And look, it's actually gone down. Everything yeah. else has gone up. It has gone down. Yeah. The, thing that would, the thing that would stabilise house prices more than anything else is if the government itself took responsibility to provide mm. supply, it refuses to do. It's doing less than ever. Yeah. Right? And this is one of the reasons the Greens dug their heels in yeah. on that stupid... Um, half or whatever it's called. Yeah, the housing affordability thing. Future where, fund. Yeah, where all, but all it really is, that's, that, that's just a subsidy to the stock market. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, we'll gamble on that and then if it makes any money, we'll put some of it into housing eventually one day. So that's one, that's one aspect of it. That's how much this is. the government has borne the burden of propping this up. And when you've got essentially $27 billion of federal government subsidy and that's not the state governments. They, they have their own subsidies. They have their own things as well. When you've got $27 billion, that create, that's something that's like, it, for the way the banks see that, that, they look at that as like seed capital. Mm. They, can, they can pile in on top of that, right? And, and that's what's been happening. But then there's a, there's a mind-blowing part of this report which actually shows you how deliberately unfair this policy is. Um, and that is how they've broken down who receives these subsidies in the different forms that, that, that you know, if you, if you could put a dollar, they've put a dollar value on all the subsidies 
per person, essentially. And they've broken down the recipients in quintiles of total earners. Mm. So the, 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 the lowest 20%, the next 20%, mid 20%, second highest 20%, and highest 20%, right? And who gets what? And over time, Richard, it has shifted radically. So we're going to put up a table, table 10, and then a, and then a graph. But look at, look, at the, look at table 10. It shows you, just, well, just for, for simplicity, we'll just focus on lowest and highest. In 93-94, the lowest quintile of earners, the lowest 20% of earners in Australia, received 44% of the federal government subsidies. Yeah. So still not a majority. Still <laughs> not a majority, no. It's, but the lowest 20%, and they received 44% of the subsidies. The highest 20% received 9% of the subsidies. And they didn't need any, yeah. but they received 9%. So it was what you would call progressive, Right, where the people who needed it the most got it the most. Just the graph, if you you can freeze the screen and look at the table change over time, but just jump to now, 30 years later, 2021, 22. The lowest 20% received 23% of the subsidies. The highest 20% received 43% of the subsidies. So it's basically flipped. Everything is biased in favour of subsidising the rich even more. I mean, this is mind-blowing, How this, this, fact, this aspect of it. And there's a graph here, figure four, where you can see that actually in a figure in terms of how the, the top um, green part is the, is the highest quintile, how, how their share of the subsidy has grown and grown and grown over time, mm. and the bottom one has shrunk and shrunk. And the two, the, the middle class, <laughs> it's still the middle class. The squeezed middle class is still yeah. the squeezed middle class. Uh, starting to think that Mao had the right idea about landlords. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. You can say it. You just can't act on it. Okay. Um, so... What, look, this is, this is absolutely shameless. You've got the government, RBA and private banks fully backing investor property speculation to, housing, to make housing more expensive, which is the main driver for inflation, and the RBA punishing households for the inflation by piling the interest rates on them. Yep, and um, the RBA even says so. Oh, well, inflation is basically aggregate household expenditure. Therefore, we need to make the things that aren't in the inflation accounting and yep. that, you know, Essential spending, compulsory spending, basically yep. make those more uh, make that more expensive to the point that they can't afford anything else, and then inflation will go down. That's their whole yep. shtick, and they say so quite openly in their papers. And the, and they're lying about. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll we'll still come back to that. So then, but there's one other aspect that needs to be talked about, Richard, and I want to talk about it carefully because I, I don't want to be misinterpreted here because um, we're not we're not gung ho um, uh, on this. In fact. We're going to criticise it in a certain way, but let me introduce by saying when you have this rise in interest rates, by any normal measure, that should be smashing the housing market. Mm. It actually should. You're making borrowing more expensive. It should be smashing it. So how come it's not? Well, the government, which could actually be stopping this, and that's what we're going to talk about in a minute, they could be stopping all this and intervening in, say, lower interest rates. They're not. They are saying, "Oh, no, no, this is all independent of us." They've got a trick up their sleeve hmm. to keep house prices up. And what is that? It's the biggest influx of immigration probably we've ever... I mean, in absolute numbers we've ever seen. Yeah. And I don't even... I, can't, I don't know proportionally how it compares to the post-war boom, which um, was pretty big. I think in the post-war boom, the population grew by about 40% in 20 years. So 
Wow. A lot of that was natural increase as well, but there was a huge migration intake. But it was, um, which, yeah, it was done a different way. They, they had jobs lined up. Yep. They built the towns that they were going to live in. They built the infrastructure to make the population growth yep. sustainable at a decent standard of living. This, this mob are doing the opposite. And Howard did the opposite. Ever since Howard, they've done the opposite deliberately and, to inflate the property bubble. Yeah. Now, you're, talk, so you're, you're listening to a party that advocates a big Australia. Yeah. We know Australia could have 50 million people, like the, I remember the late Malcolm Fraser advocated this, yeah. could have 100 million people, but it shouldn't, the growth should not be in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, right? The, if you spread out, you know, I've, in, in the hearings last year, Richard, I got to go to these small dusty towns, they're desperate for people to go and yep. live there. Why did the rednecks of Biloela go into bat for the Sri Lankan family? They're as redneck yep. as anyone in the world, yep. right? You kidding? They had a family want to live in their town. They wanted them, right? You could, if if you had, you could have an enormous immigration program, but make sure that the measures are in place to spread it out right across the country, and you'd barely notice it. Yeah, wouldn't touch the sides. In fact, Australia is the most urbanised. If you look at not just the metro, not just the capital cities, but regional cities as well, ones that qualify as cities, places like you know Rockhampton in Queensland, and um, you know these, um, you get the idea. Yeah. It's something like 91%. It's ridiculous. And the rest of the country is virtually empty and getting emptier proportionally, both because of this immigration intake that they just cram them in without any regard to their or anyone else's standard of living, as we said, because they're not creating the productive jobs for anybody, let alone the migrants. They're just using them to prop up, to fake up the figures. and there's people moving out of regional centres to the cities have been for decades for the same reason. Yep. And so you've got these towns just withering on the vine um, and the people who are still there can't do all the work that needs doing and don't have the financial resources to expand their businesses because the banks are cutting off credit and all the rest of it that we've talked about before. Um, so, you know, the way that we did it back then, the, the big immigration mm. programs after the war were the exact inverse yep. of what's going on now. And that's, so that's the point. We're not, we're not decrying immigration. What we, are, what we are pointing out is what we're seeing now is pure BS. You, this is the actions of desperate politicians who have... I'll tell you how these politicians think, because they all think the bloody same. They get elected, right? And then, and then the wise elders of the party tell them the basic rules of politics. And one of the rules is, if you ever preside over falling property prices, you're gone. Mm. Right, and so they're dead. Oh, oh, we can't let that happen. What can we do? Oh, if we bring in all this immigration, mm. you're going to cre- and, and cram them into Sydney, Melbourne, and, and Brisbane, right, and Perth, and whatever. You're going to you're going to create all this real demand mm. for housing. So we're going to increase housing stock by forty thousand dollars, forty thousand this year, but bring in six hundred thousand migrants, right? And mm. that in that real demand, desperate demand, will keep and push the market up. Yep. And that is how they think, and that is what they're doing, and that is causing all sorts of um, suffering out there in the community. It's not the migrants' fault, and it's very important you understand that. Don't blame the, 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 the immigrants in your neighbourhood. It's not their fault, right? right? They're being, they're being uh, you know, lured into Australia with all the offers. That, you know, in fact, there's a percentage of them that come here and think, well, this sucks, right? Mm. This is not what I expected. And they go home. But they're being lured here under, with, with all these kind of uh, uh, incentives to create this effect. 
and it's not the way a country should be run at all. What should be done instead? Well, this is the part that relates to our campaign at the moment against the RBA reforms bill because the Treasurer has the power to intervene on this in quite significant ways. So this week, Richard, we put out the press release that um, uh, people hopefully might have seen where we've called for the public to demand, instead of Jim Chalmers giving up his power over the RBA, he, we should demand he use his power. And he can do a couple of things. The first thing he can do is provide immediate cost of living relief to all households by not promising that things like oh, electricity won't rise by $220 this year. Not, none of that rubbish. Hmm. Tell the RBA, or order the RBA to lower interest rates like, like from between 1% and 2%. Right, 100, 200 basis points. So if you, so if it's, you know, they can take them down to two and a half percent or whatever. Yeah. Not that they shouldn't have been normalised, but remember they were normalised in the, they, they were brought up in the fastest rate yeah. in history. Right, that should, t- that should have taken place over a long, much longer time frame. The treasurer can look, recognise the pain that people are suffering, the record um, mortgage stress out there, and say, okay, RBA drop rates, yeah. but then how do you stop that from fueling more property speculation. Yep. And this is where the other thing that we've written about in, the, in, the, uh, in that press release, people can check it out, but the other thing that's in the Reserve Bank Act, he can direct the Reserve Bank... That, that, cut those, that instruction to cut interest rates does not have to be across the board. No. Don't drop them for investor rates, investor loans. Hell, put them up for investor loans. Yep. wouldn't hurt. You can drop them for actual homeowners who have been lured into this trap because remember, the previous government told people, go out and borrow. That's yeah, a direct yeah, quote from yeah. the assistant treasurer of the day. Michael Sucker. Michael Sucker. Go out and borrow. And then here you go, suckers. Slap upside the head with a brick. Um, tell, bring them down for that because they can differentiate between different classes of lending. The banks do it anyway. Yep. They offer incentive rates to yep, this, yep. that or the other when it suits them. The RBA, the treasurer via the RBA, has the authority that he's trying to give away to tell them to do that in a way to bring inflation, bring the cost of living down, um, not in the official inflation we were talking about before, um, without, without any of the pain that they're deliberately inflicting on the people who can least afford it right now. So they can, he can order them to, to cut rates to provide emergency relief. He can order them to differentiate. He can order the RBA to order the banks to differentiate mm. in their rates. And the RBA also, he can order the RBA, has the power to just tell the banks flat out Stop lending in that area, yep. right? And the, the banks will go, well, if we're not lending to... They could just say, stop lending to investors for the foreseeable future. Or, or like, you know, if it's this much lending, bring it back yeah. to, you know, a, a fraction of that. And the, the banks might say, well, oh, what are we going to lend for instead? Hey, lend to the people who really want you to lend to them. The mm. small businesses in Australia, the people yeah. who employ the people who, buy, who pay these mortgages, for yeah. crying out loud. The people who do or could make the stuff that would fill the gaps in the supply chain that exactly. they keep talking about driving up inflation, exactly. for example. Those are the tools. We've, we've named three tools there. Michelle Bullock said multiple times last year in Senate hearings, we only have one tool. She was lying. Yeah. We've given you three tools that are in legislation that they could use Yep. And these are precisely the ones that they're trying to legislate away in this RBA yeah. reforms bill. Or as we've said before, yeah, they, they might only have one tool, but it's Jim Chalmers. Jim Chalmers, that's right. <laughs> tool in every sense of the word. So let's wrap this up because we've got to get into the other, onto the other segment. But this is why you need to make a submission. We have until the 2nd of February for everybody to make submissions to this 
Senate Economics Legislation Committee inquiry into the RBA reforms bill, make a submission. And don't just make it a passive submission saying, don't give up these powers. I mean, you can say that. They have no right to give up these powers. But make it active. Demand the powers be used. That's the pressure we've got to start putting on the government right now. The powers are there to be used. The great Ben Chifley and John Curtin legislated those powers precisely so they could be used for a time like this, right, to provide relief for the people who need it instead of this policy of make, punishing the people to pay for the crimes of the, the banking elite. So make a submission. We'll, we'll have the link below to the press release with the details in it. Make a submission demanding that these powers be used by the 2nd of February. Um, all right, now let's move on. The crime of the century is now the cover-up of the century. And before we begin this, Richard, I, I did want to mention last week at the end of the show, we, we, we um, uh, paid a small tribute to the late, great John Pilger, um, who passed away on the 30th of December. Um, and, you know, Pilger was a, a giant of Australian journalism as mm. a foreign correspondent, and he exposed so many things. But then I thought, well, because there was another death this week and it reminded me of something else. So I thought it's actually... Um, there's, there's something poetic about the fact that Pilger has died, as sad as that is, around the same time as, as the guy that you know, sort of represents the opposite of everything Pilger stood for, who, who died just before Christmas, which needs to be mentioned, which is Henry Kissinger. Mm. right? And then this, or two weeks ago, just in the new year, early in the new year, another person died that's less well-known but, but should be. Deserves to be a lot better known than he is. Deserves to be. For all the wrong reasons. Brigadier Frank Kitson died. And he died at the age of 92 or 94 90, or something 97, like that. 97. Oh, 97, 97. So, that's, so I thought only the good die young. Kissinger was 100. Frank Kitson was 97. Pilger was 84. But Pilger spent his life exposing the kind of crimes committed by people like Kissinger and... and um, uh, Kitson. So Kissinger, you know, people know, and if you, if you, you know, I mean, actually, one of the th- one of the things that Pilger did, one of the the big stories that made him very big was what he did on Cambodia, mm. and of course, Cambodia is a, was a product of you know Kissinger and Nixon's crimes, Cambodia and Laos and and Vietnam, yeah, the killing fields and all the, the killi- rest of that, the killing fields. Um, so Kissinger, you know, what Kissinger did in that era um, in, in the in the pursuit of uh, you know, Anglo-American power was absolutely awful. Um, the pro- can I say, and this is not to this is not to uh, whitewash the guy, but by the end he wasn't the craziest person going around yeah. because just, everyone else had gotten crazier. Everyone because got, he had got, gone anywhere. He he started it. He started the rot, yeah. right? But everyone after him did get a lot crazier. But anyway, um, you cannot whitewash what happened in that period. Um, but people know who Henry Kissinger is. Just briefly tell people who Frank Kitson was. Um, Frank Kitson was the head of the um, SAS unit, the counterinsurgency, so-called programs in places like Yemen, Malaya, Kenya, um, and Northern Ireland. His men were the ones responsible for the Bloody Sunday, Bloody Sunday Massacre. Um, the British uh, psychologist boffins at the Tavistock Clinic, Tavistock Institute, would come up with these theories about terrorising whole populations into submission and Kitson and his men were the ones who used the populations of these colonies or former colonies as uh, lab rats yeah. to test the test and refine the theories. And so, if you look um, up the horrors of places like Malaya and, and um, Kenya, yeah. the Mau Mau, what they did to the Mau Mau in the Mau Mau uprising, yeah. the British did. This was this Kitson, Kitson died, guy yeah. did it. And uh, yeah, and then Northern Ireland directly is in there running the show for many years yeah. um, as well. So. 
which is one that, you know, I mention it, emphasize it because it's one that people probably remember better um, yeah. who are around today. We'll, we'll, do, we'll, do, some, we'll do a uh, uh, something in our um, publication in the Australian Alert Service about Kitson to remind people of who he is. But frankly, he's one of the most evil men of the 20th century um, and, and the, the things that he perpetrated. And it has to be highlighted because, of course, we, we, we're part of the, the Anglo-American so-called rules-based order mm. and, one of the, and, 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 and we, we, we champion, we supposedly champion human rights. But these people, the British especially, um, but anyone who perpetrates war, but the British were responsible for real atrocities in these countries like Malaya and, and Kenya, mm. right, and Northern Ireland, and Yemen right, and, and yeah, using, scores of other places, using actual criminals and, and murder gangs and whatever in Northern Ireland, right. The, the, the everyone I grew up being told about the IRA, the IRA, the IRA, and then you get old and you learn about the, Brit, the actual British role and all that, right, and those sort of things. Um, it was this guy who mm. did it, and what surprised me in something I read is that even as old as he was, even in 2006, he was still being consulted with by people like General David Petraeus of the American mm. Army, right, who was in charge of the, the surge in Iraq to put down the insurgency there, mm. right, put down the people fighting for the freedom of their country. Who did he go and consult with? Frank Kitson. Yep. Right. So anyway... Which, yeah, which I was going to say, which brings us back to the subject at hand. Because exactly, exactly. Because that, so those are those guys, but we're going to talk now about the, the, the fallout from the continued fallout from the Iraq War. I always call the Iraq War the, the, the war crime of the 21st century. Still, despite everything else that's happened, mm. it's still the war crime of the 21st yeah, century, in my view. It set the stage for all the subsequent ones in that whole region. Now, supposedly, Richard had had this impact. Play the clip. I guarantee you that it will have enormous positive reverberations on the region. And I think that people sitting right next door in Iran, young people, uh, and many others will say, the time of such regimes, of such despots, is gone. What you just saw, that was Benjamin Netanyahu, the, 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 the butcher of Gaza, in 2002, when he wasn't in the Israeli government, 2002, promising as he's lobbying for the illegal invasion of Iraq, what it would do to the region. Mm. And instead, it has literally done the opposite. Yeah. Favourable effects for whom, Ben? Exactly, exactly. It, it, it's turned the Middle East, it, it set, started the rot that turned the Middle East into a hellscape. It set, it set off a chain reaction of, of death and destruction over there. 20 years later, though, Richard, there's a scandal in Australia because, as we said at the start of the show, um, Every 20 years, you, they release the National Archives to the National Archives, the Cabinet Papers, papers. for the decisions 20 years earlier. Yep. And suddenly, something's gone wrong. So tell the story. Yeah, so um, it's announced quietly in a press release just, um, uh, just around Christmas um, that they, or it was announced on the 1st of January, but this, just before Christmas that, oh, we noticed that there were 78 documents missing, a small number, they said, of documents later confirmed by the, by the government, by the Prime Minister personally, that it was 78 documents. Well, the entire tranche that was already released was only around 240 documents. So they actually, the Morrison government hands the, so the government hands these things over three years earlier to the National Archive so, they so that they can be prepared, vetted, for, vetted by the security agencies, but they're only supposed to take out any sensitive information that relates to people who would be basically endangered or national security issues that would put people in danger um, endanger the public interest where they revealed yeah. yet. 
and then eventually they get they put a they put a defined timeline on when these things are going to be published um, in a lot of cases. But so the Morrison government just kept back 78 documents, most or all of which apparently relate to the um, the National Security Committee of Cabinet, the inner inner circle of the inner circle, um, on the decision to go into Iraq alongside the British and Americans. Well, the Americans led it, and the Brits yep. were there with. The Brits helped them cook it up. Sex up the DOS. Sex yeah, up the fake intelligence. the intelligence. MI6 was all that. Now, supposedly, um, uh, ASIO, according to some people, actually argued against that. But we'll, we may never know because Albanese <laughs> says, oh, well, this is unacceptable. Um, people deserve to know, which we absolutely do. Yeah, yeah. But the guy he appointed to investigate this supposed administrative oversight was the head of ASIO at the time, Dennis Richardson. Now, we don't know Dennis Richardson. He's had some... Positive impacts on the whole foreign policy debate. We know that. He's pushed back very hard against this whole China threat hysteria. He's not the worst. He's not the worst of them, but that, then again, that's not saying much. But he was um, part of that decision but, at the time. Yeah, just the obvious conflict of interest yeah. about po- appointing a man who was in the meetings yeah. to investigate the disappearance of the documents about the meetings is an incredibly stupid thing to do any which way you look at it. You know, whether you're trying to assuage fears of a cover-up or perpetuate one, Either way, it's just dumb on Albanese's part. Now, now, Richard, curiously, a lot of the people who were in, in, in that period involved in the meetings, including John Howard himself, Peter Jennings, who later became Aspie, etc., they're all saying, oh, no, everything should be released, everything should be released. Oh, yeah. And the question is, why are they yeah. so happy for everything to be released? Yeah. And there's, um, which I've quoted in the article, but there's numerous people, one of whom was involved directly at the time, uh, Rick Smith, the then Defence Secretary, saying that basically... We were, it was given to us to understand, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he basically said, it, we were given to understand that they didn't want our advice, it was all going to the ministers and the prime minister knew what they were doing. However, the, his predecessor, or next to immediate predecessor um, back in the late 90s, um, who was drummed out because he was too much of an independent thinker, uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Barrett, who passed yeah. away not long yeah. ago, um, he was defence secretary um, in 98-99, he said... Uh, no, Howard made all the decisions. The ministers weren't consulted either. And, um, and then uh, James Curran, the uh, international affairs editor of the Australian Financial Review, um, and he's a professor of modern history at um, uh, University of Sydney, he had an interesting comment on this where he quotes from his own sources uh, that the, the head of the Foreign Affairs Department at the time, um, a guy named Ashton Calvert, also now deceased, um, said that so one of his colleagues said, "Oh, where's the cabinet submission for the decision? For the, where's you know the, the yeah. dossier behind the the, yeah, the yeah. rationale for the decision to go into Iraq?" And he said, uh, "What do you think we're running here? An effing debating society? Uh, you know, there is no submission. There is no submission. There is no cabinet submission, right? So these and John Howard writes this this letter to the editor saying, "Oh, just yeah, go ahead and release all of them." So, um, so they probably won't reveal much. They probably won't reveal much because they made, knowing the process, these guys made sure that there was nothing on paper, which is also probably the reason that people might have heard this story that, oh, the Governor General was cut out of the loop because he's the guy who actually has the authority, according yeah. to the letter of the law and the Constitution. Yeah. But um, it's convention. You know, he could intervene to stop it, but if it suits the purposes of the British establishment, the Americans, then, of course, he's not going to anyway. No. Um, 
And, uh, and but supposedly he was cut out cut of the decision making. Yeah, so this is Hollingworth, was, Peter Hollingworth was Governor General at the time, was supposedly cut out of the decision making because Howard said, oh, well, we don't need your input. Now we're doing it ourselves. But of course, had he been consulted, that would require formal communications in writing that they didn't want to exist in writing. Yeah. Um, and so, because so, you've got to you got to call BS when you see it. So here's this this supposed scandal. Oh, the the Governor General's cut out of the decision making. Well, hang on. Here's the Prime Minister. His name is John Winston Howard. Mm. He's the most British Anglophile of all Australian Prime Ministers. He's Since stick, Menzies, anyway. He's a stickler for uh, convention. Mm. He led the opposition to the Republic on the basis that no, no, we do have an Australian head of state. He's our Governor General. Right, is the Australian head of state, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and Howard would deliberately um, upset convention to throw that to, to throw the Governor General overboard. Yeah. Rubbish. Yeah, it doesn't pass the sniff test at all. Right, Howard was the 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 only interpretation is um, he he would have said to Peter Hollingworth, uh, "We leave don't it, want to we leave, don't want to put anything yeah. in writing. Leave it to me. Yeah, leave it to me, Peter. Yeah, and the question is, um, you know, who who, who for? Well remind people what was the ultimate rationale we had for going into Iraq? Was it weapons of mass destruction? No. They pretended it was, but, um, I mean, you mentioned Peter Jennings. Um, He wrote an article uh, on the 10th anniversary. It's now just past the 20th anniversary um, of the invasion of Iraq, saying that straight up that, well, we were going in anyway because um, we had to stay in good with the Americans. I forget the exact words that he used. Maybe we can find it and put up a screenshot but um yeah just uh that was our that was the rationale he just admits it straight up like it's not even not even an issue and nothing to worry about and which everybody already knew but you know good on him for confirming it i suppose yeah and that was so so we we participate in the war crime of the century not because of the reason that we were being brainwashed with oh there's this threat of weapons of mass destruction but for us it was we just have to be on the side of the americans and ironically now um we have we have a similar uh, narrative, because the Americans and the British have just bombed Yemen, which mm-hmm. is not the same as protecting the shipping. They've bombed nope. Yemen. That's not under. That's not authorized by UN Security Council resolution. We are participating by providing personnel for that, so we're actually complicit in that bombing, that illegal bombing. But why is? But the the, the Howard types in Australia, the right wing, who, who mm-hmm. are attacking Albanese for not sending Australian warships over there. What are they saying we should... Why are they saying we should be sending warships? Because the Americans have asked us to. Yep. And if the Americans ask us to, we've got to do it. That's just the way it's done. No yep. sovereignty, no independent decision-making. We have to be shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder with the Americans in every mm. war. Yep. And, uh, you know, never mind that we don't actually have the warships to send <laughs> or the crews to man them. Yep. Um, that, that's apparently... We can just yep. decree that, not to, that problem not to exist. Um, all right. Well, look, we're, we've pretty much run out of time, uh, Richard. That's, this has been an interesting scandal. It, it just shows you, you know, um, like with other things, I, I'll mention this briefly. Last Monday, ABC did a story, did a documentary on the palace letters. Yeah, I thought of the same thing. Jenny Hocking's fight to get those letters revealed. That, that when it comes to where real power resides, the system is geared to hide it mm. and disguise it from the public, Right. And this scandal yeah. is, is something similar to that. Yeah, because for anyone who doesn't know, when the letters were finally revealed, then 
you had to know how, how to read them to know what was missing from them yeah, that's right. that confirmed all the theories about yeah. that Hocking and others had had. But there was, again, very little actually in writing conf- directly confirming. Because, they, were, they, yeah, well, they, because they, they know the system. They, they know hiding, these are eventually going to come out. What they wanted to hide was the role of the palace itself, the crown, the queen, and a private secretary in the dismissal of Gough Whitlam, yeah. an elected Australian prime minister. Um, and so they found a way to do that until Jenny Hocking um, just wouldn't give up. She was the exception that proves the rule um, of, of the way secrecy works in Australia, you know, and this is, this is um, in the same vein. But that said, we're running out of time. Richard, um, thank you very much for joining, joining us today uh, with that, uh, those insights you brought. Uh, thanks to the viewer for uh, watching, and remember, make that submission. Right. This is really, really important. We've got to the 2nd of February. This goes to the heart of how do we have government that, rep, that, that serves the people or not. The people's needs right now are to address this cost of living crisis. The government has the power to do it. But will the government just crush the people and allow the banks and the people who cause this crisis to, get, to, to go on their merry way, making more debt, more profit for themselves, etc., at the long-term uh, cost of the country? That's, that's what we're dealing with. That's why we can't let these, this weak, um, gutless, treacherous treasurer, Jim Chalmers, give away this power. It's not his power to give away. Write a submission and demand that he use it as his responsibility as treasurer rather than remove it. Um, And we keep democratic accountability over the Central Bank of Australia, the Reserve Bank. Um, And so do that and tune in next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.